Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Uh, we had a really, really good response to our last show on, on, on Wednesday. Obviously, people are very interested in the uh, recent indictment against Donald Trump and uh, the uh, incidents surrounding January 6th. We had, believe it or not, over 600,000 people uh, watching the show and then more listening to the show. And so I hope those numbers will keep up. Uh, I'm going to keep on talking about this case, and I'm going to try to give you the straight poop that you don't get on uh, either the right wing or the left wing media, because I'm neither right wing or left wing when it comes to analyzing legal cases. I'm somebody with 60 years of experience in analyzing legal cases, and I just give you the benefit of my experience. Uh, let the let you know let the chips fall where they may. Um, I'm not on anybody's side, as you know. I'm a liberal Democrat who generally votes for Democrats. I have voted on occasion for Republicans and will vote on any Republican who's a better candidate. I have no party loyalty uh, to either party. I have loyalty to the Constitution and patriotic loyalty to the United States of America. So I'm going to continue to give you the straight poop, and I will tell you things about uh, these indictments, the forthcoming one probably in in Georgia, the current ones in um, Florida, New York, and uh, the District of Columbia. We'll see how long it stays in the District of Columbia. That's an issue we'll talk about today, but I'll always give you the straight poop on it. And, you know, people say in my letter sometimes, well, you change sides. No, I don't change sides. I'm always on the side of the Constitution. The Constitution sometimes favors one side and favors the other, but you can be sure I will always be on the side of the Constitution. So I want to give you my uh, analysis based now on a lot of time and thinking about uh, the January 6th Washington, D.C. case. I'll start by saying that if I were the lawyer for Trump, here's the argument I would make. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, when you decide this case, I want you to imagine a scenario different from the one we now have in front of us. I want you to imagine a case where the election had, in fact, been stolen. I'm not saying this election was stolen. I want you to imagine a situation where, in fact, the election was stolen, where votes that were intended for Trump were given to Biden, where machines uh, miscounted, where uh, state legislatures uh, passed statutes and the courts struck them down that expanded the number of people who can vote like in, in Pennsylvania. I just want you to imagine what the situation would be if, in fact, Donald Trump was right and the election was stolen from him by the Democrats. You're imagining that now. The election was actually stolen. Now, imagine Donald Trump doing exactly the same thing he did but doing it in the context of an election that was actually stolen. 
Would anything that he did be criminal? Of course not. It would be commendable. His goal was to try to get the right person elected, the right person to serve in the Oval Office as a president. And so if the election had been stolen, nothing Donald Trump did would be criminal. Yeah, what he said, covered by the First Amendment. But what he did would be covered as well by Article 1 and Article 2 of the Constitution. How do you go about electing a president? You put up alternate slates of electors. That's the appropriate thing to do. So if the election had in fact been stolen, Donald Trump would be entirely innocent of any of the charges against him on January 6th. And you can't think of anything that he did that wouldn't have been right. He would have said to the vice president, wait a minute, let's slow this thing down. They're stealing an election. Uh, we want the right person to be elected. Everything he did, everything he said would have been protected by the Constitution. So imagine for a moment you agree with me that if the election had in fact been stolen, Donald Trump would be innocent. If you agree with that, then you must acquit. Why? Because the law is you should judge Donald Trump from what he believed in his own mind. And so if he believed, if he actually believed, and if the government fails to disprove that beyond a reasonable doubt, if he actually believed the election was stolen, then you must treat him as if it was true. That's what the law says. If a person has a belief and specific intent is required to prove crime, then you have to act as if everything he believed was true was in fact true. So if you agree with the first half of my hypothetical case that the election was in fact stolen, then you must agree with the second half. And that is if Donald Trump believed that that was true, even if it isn't true, even if you don't believe it's true, if you come to the conclusion that he believed it was true, or to make it more precisely, unless the government can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it isn't uh, true, you must acquit. So that's the defense I would raise in this case. I don't know whether his lawyers are, are raising this defense. Um, you know, they're talking about aspirational statements. I don't think very many people understand that. But I think they understand when you say if it were true, you'd have to acquit him. And if that's the case, then you have to acquit him if you believe it's true. There's a concept in law known as mistake of fact. And if you make a mistake of fact, and it's a mistake of fact that is honestly held, then generally you can't be convicted of a crime. If, if you take a raincoat, that's hanging up in a restaurant and you honestly believed it was your raincoat, but it was somebody else's raincoat, you're not guilty of a crime. You made a mistake, an honest mistake of fact. And so anything you did at that point would be uh, reasonable. In any event, that's the argument I would make if I were uh, Trump's lawyer. I don't know whether his lawyers will make that argument. And I don't know whether that argument sound as it is and tight as it is legally would prevail in the District of Columbia. It would all depend on what instruction the judge gave. If the judge gave what I believe is the proper instruction, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 
in order to convict Donald Trump, you must conclude beyond a reasonable doubt, based on admissible evidence, that um, that Donald Trump actually knew that the election was fair and everything he said and he did was based on a corrupt lie. If that's the instruction, then he has a good chance of being acquitted, maybe not in the District of Columbia, but in any fair place. On the other hand, if the judge gives the following instruction, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, doesn't matter what Donald Trump actually believed. The question is what a reasonable person would believe. And a reasonable person would never believe that the election was stolen from him. Look what people told him. Barr told him it. Pence told him it. His son-in-law told him it. Everybody told him he had lost the election. So if that's the instruction, he loses. But that gets reversed on appeal because the law doesn't permit the reasonable person test in the context of a specific intent crime like conspiracy. Conspiracy is, after all, a crime of the mind. It's a crime of what you're thinking. And if you're thinking innocent, then your actions have to be interpreted as innocent. And so he has a very strong defense if his lawyers are able to put it together and adequately um, present it to a to a jury. The other issue, even if the judge makes the mistake of saying reasonable people, look how many people told him that he had lost the election, he would have the right to put on days and days of evidence from that movie, a thousand, whatever it was called, mules or whatever, and all the other evidence on, on, on television shows, uh, um, polls, media, he would be able to put on evidence after evidence showing that he's not the only person who believed the election was stolen. Many people told him it was. In fact, in my emails just today, I got over a thousand emails on the last show. Not surprising with 600,000 viewers. I got over a thousand emails. The vast majority of them say the election was stolen. And they say, well, watch this movie and watch this and watch that. You'll see. How can you possibly believe the election wasn't stolen, I hear. Uh, uh, no, no, no one has any doubts that the election was stolen. Why would you make such a statement? Totally stupid. That's typical of the emails I got. He's wrong. The election wasn't stolen. That's not the issue. The issue is not whether the election was stolen or not. As a matter of fact, that's not the issue. The issue is what did Donald Trump honestly believe. Now, if they can introduce evidence that he told people, I know the election was real. I know the election was valid. I know I lost legitimately, but I'm just doing these things in order to corruptly influence the outcome of the election and steal it back. If he said that, that's a completely different story. But the fact that other people told him that they didn't believe the election was stolen, even if they were high-ranking people, even if they were his relatives, Donald Trump's a stubborn guy. He believed, I believe, he believed the election was stolen. He was wrong. He talked himself into it. That's not the issue. The issue is whether he actually believed it. And I think my little hypothetical, starting with if the election would truly stolen, then everything he did was innocent. It follows that if he believed it was stolen, everything he did was uh, innocent, unless they try to change the law. 
And and the, the judge in this case may very well do that. And remember, this is a judge who got her legal training from a law firm that had as one of its partners the most qualified lawyer in America, this brilliant graduate of Yale Law School, this man who anybody would want to hire to be a lawyer, Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden was a partner in that firm. And the firm represented Hunter Biden and were, was involved in the Burisma case. And by the way, this is a firm, as I've told you before, that I believe has had more conflicts of interests than any firm in modern history, any big firm in modern history. Uh, there was a case not so many years ago where a judge disqualified the firm and said any first year student would have seen the obvious conflict of interest. I got them out of the case based on a conflict of uh, interest. And uh, there have been many bar charges against the firm. Um, and uh, this is a firm that has had a long history of uh, sordid behavior. And that's where she learned how to practice law. It's also a Democrat firm. It's a firm that has close connections to the uh, Democratic Party, uh, major contributions to um, the Democratic Party. He was a major donor, the senior partner in the firm, to Cyrus Vance, the Democratic District Attorney of, of New York City, and many, many other uh, Democrats. And this is a judge who has voiced negative opinions about Donald Trump and people associated with Donald Trump, has voiced positive opinions about the violence uh, engaged in by people in the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, riots that followed the um, murder of, of George Floyd. So this is a case that's being tried in the wrong place in front of the wrong judge. Let's remember one more thing, and this is crucially, crucially important. This is probably the most controversial case in modern American history. The country is deeply divided over whether the election was stolen. It was not. I'm not divided about it. The country is deeply divided about that. The country is deeply divided as to whether this is a political witch hunt, whether this is selective prosecution. Much more divided than they were over the Richard Nixon um, uh, potential impeachment and or prosecution, which didn't happen because he resigned. But this is so controversial and so divisive. You would think that the prosecution would want it to be above reproach. You would think the prosecution would consent to bringing the case in West Virginia or Virginia or some other state. Remember, this is the most anti-Trump district of any district in the United States. You'd think that the prosecution, if he believes he has a strong case that he didn't want to endanger on appeal, uh, would want the case to be tried in front of a judge who is above reproach. She is not above reproach. Now, why isn't he worried about being reversed on appeal? Because the appeal would take place after the election and the impact of a conviction would occur prior to the election. He wants the case tried before the election. Uh, he's in, in contradiction now to the judge in Florida who wants the case tried in May. Can't try the Florida case in May. And then this case in what, July, August, September, maybe, maybe, October, the days before the election. No. The last thing he wants is for the trial to occur after the election. And 
if an appeal occurs after the election and, and the conviction is reversed, it will have no impact um, on the election. But if, in fact, um, he's acquitted, uh, it could have a, a major impact on the election. And the chances of him having a fair trial are much greater in Palm Beach County, where the Florida case is going to be tried. And in um, Virginia, um, it could be Southern Virginia, which is a very purple area, uh, or it could be Northern Virginia, which is a more democratic area. But anything is fairer than the District of Columbia. And so if the prosecution has a strong case, they shouldn't be concerned about where it's brought. They indeed should be happy to have it brought in front of a fair judge in a district that's split down the middle so he can have a fair jury veneer from which to pick the 12 jurors that have to unanimously agree to have him convicted of a federal crime. But no, they're going to fight it tooth and nail. Uh, they're going to argue that, uh, no, the case should be tried in the District of Columbia. That's where the crime was committed. And remember, the Constitution has two provisions about that. First, and the most important provision, it has to be a fair jury. Uh, and second, it has to take place in the district where the crime was committed. But the courts have held, I was involved in one such case, that you can move the case out of the district where the crime was allegedly committed if that district has a problem of providing a fair trial. The fair trial comes first and is more important than the district where, where the trial occurred. I was involved in a case involving the former borough president of Queens. Uh, uh, maybe it was the borough president. No, it was the former pre borough president of the Bronx. And the major witness against him was, I think, the former borough president of Queens. It's a very, very New York-y case. And they moved it to Connecticut. And they got a conviction. And I argued the appeal. I wasn't involved in the trial. But uh, they did move it to, to Connecticut. And you can move it. Uh, the Constitution allows you to move the case out of the district to another district if that's the only way to achieve a fair trial. So uh, I, I fully expect as a civil libertarian that uh, the courts will eventually hold that the case should not have been tried in the District of Columbia in front of this judge. Very rare to get a court of appeals to throw out a case based on the recusal of a judge, but they ought to make a record and they ought to present it and make it a strong record uh, to make sure that a court of appeals um, has a basis for reversing the conviction if the conviction results from trial in an unfair venue and in front of a judge who is either biased or has an appearance of bias. And I think in this case, at the very least, the appearance of bias is satisfied by having been in the same firm as Hunter Biden, the son of the current president of the United States, whose own fortunes are very much at issue and might very well be influenced by the outcome of, of this case. Uh, the two are connected uh, in, in the political sense and in, in the realistic sense. So this case should not be tried in, in the District of Columbia, and it should not be tried in front of this judge and the prosecution should join in a defense motion to move the case to a place and in front of a judge where all Americans can say, if there's a conviction, wow, that was fair. It was in a good neighborhood and it was in front of a good judge. 
That seems to be what's going on in Palm Beach County. That's a fair jurisdiction. A lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans. The judge appointed by Trump, but she's already made some rulings uh, against Trump. So uh, she seems to be fair. And by the way, she was right on the one issue she was reversed on in the Trump case uh, when the um, government seized all of his lawyer-client communications and the government said, well, well, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll have somebody in the Justice Department. We'll call it a taint team. We'll have them go over the law. No, you can't let a Justice Department lawyer read lawyer-client privilege communication. She was right. She sent it to a former retired judge from New York and said, no, the former retired judge who isn't in the Justice Department should be the one to decide whether these are privileged materials and whether they should be sent over to the trial team. She was 100% right, and she was reversed. And the Court of Appeals said she was wrong. They were wrong. She was right. And so that case should not be used as a wedge against, against her. That case in Florida seems to be heading toward a much fairer trial than the case in Washington, D.C. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, outcomes of cases are not predictable. Remember, there are several possible verdicts in a case. There's guilty, there's not guilty, and then there's a hung jury. And hung juries are um, uh, very common in these kinds of of cases. There used to be a fourth verdict when Aaron Burr was put on trial for treason after he killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Not because of that, because he was trying to raise an army, allegedly. The verdict that the jury came down with was a fourth verdict. It said not proven, not proven, which is a Scottish verdict. And Aaron Burr pleaded with the presiding justice, John Marshall, who was the chief justice of the United States, to allow the verdict to state that they didn't, that he wanted the verdict to be shifted to not guilty instead of not proven. And Marshall said, no, I'm going to leave it alone. Let the public judge about that. And the public did judge and they judged uh, negatively about Aaron Burr. Of course, his career was ruined primarily by the duel he had with Alexander Hamilton, but then he was put on trial for, for treason, but he was not convicted. And, uh, and that was one of the greatest trials in American history. Prosecuting attorney, the defense attorney were all very prominent people, the judge, the chief justice, and Thomas Jefferson behind the scenes was giving immunity to witnesses. Jefferson desperately wanted to see Burr convicted. And so he called witnesses into his office and made a promise to them, I will not allow you to be prosecuted. Those were the days when presidents could say who was being prosecuted and who was not. Um, and, and, and I will not allow you to be prosecuted if you testify truthfully against Aaron Burr. And some of them did, but nonetheless, Burr uh, was not convicted. So, you know, we've seen cases like this in American history, but um, none quite as controversial as, as, as this one and as consequential because it could have a big impact on determining who the next president of the United States will be. Okay. Um, oh, I wanted to make one more point, and that's very important. There is now an argument being made, and I think it will be made by the lawyers, that this case was encouraged to be brought 
by the president of the United States against his most prominent rival. He's denied that. President Biden said, no, I, I never talked to, to Garland. I never urged him to do anything. But let me read you from, from the New York Times. Um, While the president has never communicated his frustration, his frustration over there not having been a prosecution, this, this is April of 2022, and it says uh, the attorney general's deliberative approach has come to frustrate Democratic allies of the White House and at times President Biden himself. And it says, while the president has never communicated his frustration over the fact that he hasn't been prosecuted directly to Mr. Garland, he has said privately, and the private conversations were then made public, so obviously Garland knew about that. Uh, he said he has said privately that he wanted Mr. Garland to act less like a ponderous judge and more like a prosecutor who's willing to take decisive action over the events of January 2nd. Now imagine Merrick Garland reading that in the New York Times, reading it in various newspapers around the country. It's a message. He's getting the message from Biden. Biden is saying to him, hey, Garland, don't act like a ponderous judge. Act like a zealous prosecutor. And not long after that, we get a zealous prosecution of the man running against the incumbent president of the United States to replace him. That we're not a banana republic. We're far from it. But boy, that is a step toward banana land when you have the current president of the United States communicating through friends who then leak it to the newspapers, a message to the attorney general of the United States, get Trump, get Trump. It's the name of my book, get Trump. If, if this doesn't prove that this administration is out to get Trump, I don't know what does. Um, and so we have a situation now where the president of the United States indirectly urges his attorney general to prosecute zealously the man who's running against him for president. If you're going to do that, it better be the strongest case imaginable. It better be in front of a completely unbiased judge and in a district where justice can be achieved. None of those criteria have been met. And we're getting closer to the bananas every time one of these stories comes out and every time the prosecution refuses to move the case, I see another banana. And so right now we're at two or three bananas. Let's assume that we have a banana criteria. If you get 10 bananas, you're a banana republic. We're probably two or three at this point. That's too close for comfort. Let's see what my letters say today. <clears throat> lots and lots and lots of letters. Some are very nice. Boy, it's nice to hear a voice of reason and erudition in the wilderness. Glad you are back, Dersh. A lot of glad you are back. So I'm, I'm happy with that. A few said they wish I had spent more time away. Some even worse. Listening to you reminds me of a time when disagreements can be intelligently, honestly shared, discussed, and explored. Thank you for forcing me to examine my biases and allow for reasonable dissent. Great. I think those are, that's terrific. Um, 
Professor Dershowitz, can Trump lawyers request from a higher court to be given more time to open up all the 2020 election-related records, documents, footage, machines, in order to prove his doubts about the outcome were justified? How can they request this? Isn't enough time for such a case constitutionally supported? Yes, and I think his lawyers will do that. And I think his lawyers will seek to admit uh, evidence that other people believe the election was stolen. And if the judge refuses to put that on and puts on evidence in which it is alleged that people told Trump that the election wasn't stolen, that will be a, a really interesting issue for appeal. Um, okay. Sir, with due respect, you are completely wrong about what you described as the strongest case against Trump. He, that's the Florida case. He was waving around a newspaper article. If you apply the newspaper article reasoning while listening to the tape, it makes perfect sense. It was not the actual documents, but a newspaper article. Well, the supervening indictment now alleges that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was classified material. So I guess we'll wait and see. Um, what do you think? Uh, I heard the argument that the indictment core is what Trump actually admitted he knew that he hadn't won the election. However, went about claiming he had worked to find more votes. So it's not about free speech in this case, rather committing a fraud. Well, if that's the evidence, you're right, but I haven't seen it. And it's not in the indictment. The indictment doesn't claim that they have any hard evidence that Trump ever admitted to anybody that he knew the election was stolen. Okay, so you get one of these every time, every mail, you get one of these. So what exactly were you doing on those trips to Epstein's Island, Alan? Well, let me tell you, I went with my wife and my daughter um, just a couple of months after he bought the island. I was uh, uh, associated with him through Harvard, ultimately became his lawyer. Uh, the only people on the island were um, um, Michael Porter, professor at Harvard, uh, his then wife, um, and um, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and no no young people on the island at all. Uh, my daughter was, I don't know, what, eight or nine at the time, and, um, and my wife uh, was with me all the time. That's what I was doing on the island. You don't like that, but it's too bad. That's the truth, and I can prove it. Um, Alan, you're probably the last liberal Democrat in America with honesty and integrity. I don't agree with that. The good old days of Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson, Patrick Moynihan, Adlai Stevenson, and even Jimmy Carter, you could disagree with them, but still respect them. Okay, uh, I hope we get back to the day when we can continue to uh, disagree. Now, that's not the case on, on Martha's Vineyard, certainly not in the city of Chilmark, where I am from now. Uh, you can't disagree and you can't say anything in support of Trump's constitutional rights and expect to speak at the library, speak at the book fair, speak at the synagogue and um, and have people speak to you. I had one idiot um, uh, saw me uh, uh, walking, uh, saw me a, a, on the porch uh, eating lunch with some friends and he started walking uh, toward me. His name was Dr. Merle Berger, he's a doctor. And, um, and I said to the people on the porch, this jerk, He's going to see me. He's going to pretend not to see me, but he's going to quickly turn around and walk away. And they all said, oh, you're being paranoid. Well, what do you think happened? Merle Berger saw me. He quickly turned around. He walked away. And I actually got a videotape of it. So that's 
that's intolerant uh, chill mark uh, for you. I hope the rest of the country is a little bit more tolerant than that. Uh, see you tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.